Good evening, and welcome to the Sleep with Josh podcast. It's the podcast where you sleep uh, with Josh. I am comedian Josh Yang, and every episode I read various pieces of literature in my trademark monotone voice to help you drift off to sleep. Literature like the dictionary, laws, various manuals, the different terms of services that everyone agrees to but never really reads, and other random boring ideas. Tonight, we are expanding the Sleep with Josh podcast selection of manuals to include the meditating nature of gardening. I will be reading The Manual of Gardening by L.H. Bailey, second edition, published in 1910. L.H. Bailey, or Liberty Hyde Bailey, was an American horticulturalist and botanist who co-founded the American Society for Horticultural Science. Let's just say he was a big deal. If you find yourself enjoying this experience, please follow this podcast on your podcast player of choice and tell everyone you know that you sleep with Josh. Because at the end of the day, the more people that sleep with Josh, the better. Feel free to also follow me on social media at Josh Yang Comedy. Now sit back, relax, and close your eyes because you'll get tired of this podcast. Guaranteed. Manual of Gardening A Practical Guide to the Making of Home Grounds and the Growing of Flowers, Fruits, and Vegetables for Home Use by L. H. Bailey, 2nd Edition, published in 1910. Explanation It has been my desire to reconstruct the two books, Garden Making and Practical Garden Book. But inasmuch as these books have found a constituency in their present form, it has seemed best to let them stand as they are and to continue their publication as long as the demand maintains itself and to prepare a new work on gardening. 
this new work I now offer as a manual of gardening. It is a combination and revision of the main parts of the two other books, together with much new material and the results of the experience of ten added years. A book of this kind cannot be drawn wholly from one's own practice, unless it is designed to have a very restricted and local application. Many of the best suggestions in such a book will have come from correspondents, questioners, and those who enjoy talking about gardens. And my situation has been such that these communications have come to me freely. I have always tried, however, to test all such suggestions by experience and to make them my own before offering them to my reader. I must express my special obligation to those persons who collaborated in the preparation of the other two books and whose contributions have been freely used in this one. To C.E. Hun, a gardener of long experience. Professor Ernest Walker, reared as a commercial florist. Professor L.R. Taft, and Professor F.A. Wog, well known for their studies and writings in horticultural subjects. In making this book, I have had constantly in mind the homemaker himself or herself, rather than the professional gardener. It is of the greatest importance that we attach many persons to the land, and I am convinced that an interest in gardening will naturally take the place of many desires that are much more difficult to gratify, and that lie beyond the reach of the average man or woman. It has been my good fortune to have seen amateur and commercial gardening in all parts of the United States, and I have tried to express something of this generality in the book. Yet my experience, as well as that of my original collaborators, is of the Northeastern states, and the book is therefore necessarily written from this region as a base. One gardening book cannot be made to apply in its practice in all parts of the United States and Canada, unless its instructions are so general as to be practically useless. But the principles and points of view may have wider application. While I have tried to give only the soundest and most tested advice, I cannot hope to have escaped errors and shortcomings, and I shall be grateful to my reader if he will advise me of mistakes or faults that he may discover. I shall expect to use such information in the making 
of subsequent editions. Of course, an author cannot hold himself responsible for failures that his reader may suffer. The statements in a book of this kind are in the nature of advice, and it may or it may not apply in particular conditions, and the success or failure is the result mostly of the judgment and carefulness of the operator. I hope that no reader of a gardening book will ever conceive the idea that reading a book and following it literally will make him a gardener. He must always assume his own risks, and this will be the first step in his personal progress. I should explain that the botanical nomenclature of this book is that of the Cyclopedia of American Horticulture, unless otherwise stated. The exceptions are the quote-unquote trade names, or those used by nurserymen and seedsmen in the sale of their stock. I should further explain the reason for omitting ligatures and using such words as peony, spirea, spirea, dracaena, copia, as technical Latin formularies. The compounds must of course be retained, as in peonia officinalis, spirea, Thunbergi, Dracaena fragrance, Cobea scandens. But as anglicized words of common speech, it is time to follow the custom of general literature, in which the combinations AE and OE have disappeared. This simplification was begun in the Cyclopedia of American Horticulture and has been continued in other writings. L.H. Bailey, Ithaca, New York, January 20th, 1910. Chapter 1. The Point of View. 1. The Open Center. Whenever there is soil, plants grow and produce their kind, and all plants are interesting. When a person makes a choice as to what plants he shall grow in any given place, he becomes a gardener or a farmer, and if the conditions are such that he cannot make a choice, he may adopt the plants that grow there by nature and by making the most of them, may still be a gardener or a farmer in some degree. Every family, therefore, may have a garden. If there is not a foot of land, there are porches or windows. Wherever there is sunlight, plants may be made to grow, and one plant in a tin can may be a more helpful and inspiring garden to some mind than a whole acre 
of lawn and flowers may be to another. The satisfaction of a garden does not depend on the area, nor, happily, on the cost or rarity of the plants. It depends on the temper of the person. One must first seek to love plants and nature, and then to cultivate the happy peace of mind that is satisfied with little. In the vast majority of cases, a person will be happier if he has no rigid and arbitrary notions, for gardens are moodish, particularly with the novice. If plants grow and thrive, he should be happy. And if the plants that thrive chance not to be the ones that he planted, they are plants nevertheless, and nature is satisfied with them. We are wont to covet the things that we cannot have, but we are happier when we love the things that grow, because they must. A patch of lusty pigweeds growing and crowding in luxuriant abandon may be a better and more worthy object of affection than a bed of coliasis in which every spark of life and spirit and individuality has been sheared out and suppressed. The man who worries morning and night about the dandelions in the lawn will find great relief in loving the dandelions. Each blossom is worth more than a gold coin as it shines in the exuberant sunlight of the growing spring and attracts the insects to its bosom. Little children like the dandelions. Why may not we? Love the things nearest at hand and love intensely. If I were to write a motto over the gate of a garden, I should choose the remark that Socrates is said to have made as he saw the luxuries in the market. How much there is in the world that I do not want? I verily believe that this paragraph I've just written is worth more than all the advice with which I intend to cram in the succeeding pages. Notwithstanding the fact that I may have most assiduously extracted this advice from various worthy but happily long-forgotten authors, happiness is a quality of a person, not of a plant or a garden, and the anticipation of joy in the writing of a book may be the reason why so many books on garden making have been written. Of course, all these books have been good and useful. It would be ungrateful, at the least, 
for the present writer to say otherwise. But books grow old, and the advice becomes too familiar. The sentences need to be transposed, and the order of the chapters varied. Now and then, or interest lags. Or, to speak plainly, a new book of advice on handicraft is needed in every decade, or perhaps oftener, in these days of many publishers. There has been a long and worthy procession of these handbooks. Gardener and Hepburn, Mamehan, Mamehan, Cobbett, Original, Pungent, Versatile Cobbett, exclamation mark, Fessenden, Squib, Bridgman, Sayers, Buist, and a dozen more, each one a little richer because the others had been written. But even the fact that all books pass into oblivion does not deter another hand from making still another venture. I expect, then, that every person who reads this book will make a garden, or will try to make one. But if only tares grow where roses are desired, I must remind a reader that at the outset I advised pigweeds. The book, therefore, will suit everybody, the experienced gardener, because it will be a repetition of what he already knows, and the novice, because it will apply as well to a garden of burdocks as of onions. What a garden is. A garden is the personal part of an estate the area that is most intimately associated with the private life of the home. Originally, the garden was the area inside the enclosure or lines of fortification, in distinction from the unprotected area or fields that lay beyond. And this latter area was the particular domain of agriculture. This book understands the garden to be that part of the personal or home premises devoted to ornament and to the growing of vegetables and fruits. The garden, therefore, is an ill-defined domain. Demesne. Domain. Uh, yeah, it's the main. But the reader must not make the mistake of defining it by dimensions, for one may have a garden in a flower pot or on a thousand acres. In other words, this book declares that every bit of land that is not used for buildings, walks, drives, and fences should be planted. What we shall plant, whether sward, lilacs, thistles, cabbages, pears, chrysanthemums, or tomatoes, 
we shall talk about as we proceed. The only way to keep land perfectly unproductive is to keep it moving. The moment the owner lets it alone, the planting has begun. In my own garden, this first planting is of pigweeds. These may be followed the next year by ragweeds, then by docks and thistles, with here and there a start of clover and grass. And it all ends in June grass and dandelions. Nature does not allow the land to remain bare and idle. Even the banks where plaster and lath, lath, were dumped two or three years ago are now luxuriant with burdocks and sweet clover. And yet, persons who pass those dumps every day say that they can grow nothing in their own yard because the soil is so poor. Yet, I venture that those same persons furnish most of the pigweed seed that I use on my garden. The lesson is that there is no soil where a house would be built, so poor that something worthwhile cannot be grown on it. If burdocks will grow, something else will grow. Or if nothing else will grow, then I prefer burdocks to sand and rubbish. The burdock is one of the most striking and decorative of plants, and a good piece of it against a building or on a rough bank is just as useful as many plants that cost money and are difficult to grow. I had a good clump of burdock under my study window, and it was a great comfort but the man would persist in wanting to cut it down when he mowed the lawn. When I remonstrated, when I remonstrated, he declared that it was nothing but burdock. But I insisted that, so far from being burdock, it was really Lapa Major, since which time the plant and its offspring have enjoyed his utmost respect. And I find that most of my friends reserve their appreciation of a plant until they have learned its name and its family connections. The dump place that I mentioned has a surface area of nearly 150 square feet. And I find that it has grown over 200 good plants of one kind or another this year. This is more than my gardener accomplished on an equal area, with manure and water, and a man to help. The difference was that the plants on the dump wanted to grow, and the imported plants in the garden did not want to grow. It was the difference between a willing horse and a balky horse. If a person wants to show his skill, he may choose the bulky plant, but if he wants fun and comfort in gardening, he would better choose the willing one. 
I've never been able to find out when the burdocks and mustard were planted on the dump, and I'm sure that they were never hoed or watered. Nature practices a wonderfully rigid economy. For nearly half the summer, she even refused rain to the plants, but still they thrived. Yet I stayed home from a vacation one summer that I might keep my plants from dying. I've since learned that if the plants in my hardy borders cannot take care of themselves for a time, they are little comfort to me. The joy of garden making lies in the mental attitude and in the sentiments. Chapter two: The general plan or theory of the place. Having now discussed the most essential elements of gardening, we may give attention to such minor features as the actual way in which a satisfying garden is to be planned and executed. Speaking broadly, a person will get from a garden what he puts into it, and it is of the first importance, therefore, that a clear conception of the work be formulated at the outset. I do not mean to say that the garden will always turn out what it was desired that it should be, but the failure to turn out properly is usually some fault in the first plan. Or some neglect in execution. Sometimes the disappointment in an ornamental garden is a result of confusion of ideas as to what a garden is for. One of my friends was greatly disappointed on returning to his garden early September to find that it was not so full and floriferous as when he left in July. He had not learned the simple lesson that even a flower garden should exhibit the natural progress of the season. If the garden begins to show ragged places and to decline in late August or early September, it is what occurs in all surrounding vegetation. The year is maturing. The garden ought. To express the feeling of the different months, the failing leaves and expended plants are therefore to be looked on, to some extent, at least, as the natural order and destiny of a good garden. These attributes are well exhibited in the vegetable garden. In the spring. The vegetable garden is a model of neatness and precision. The rows are straight. There are no missing plants. The earth is mellow and fresh. Weeds are absent. One takes his friends to the garden, and he makes pictures of it. By late June or early July, the plants have begun to sprawl and to get out of shape. The bugs have taken some of them. The rows are no longer trim and precise. The earth is hot and dry. The weeds are making headway. By August and September, the garden has lost its early regularity and freshness. The camera is put aside. 
the visitors are not taken to it. The gardener prefers to go alone to find the melon or the tomatoes, and he comes away as soon as he has secured his product. Now, as a matter of fact, the garden has been going through its regular seasonal growth. It is natural that it become ragged. It is not necessarily that weeds conquer it, but I suspect that it would be a very poor garden, and certainly an uninteresting one, if it retained the dress of childhood at the time when it should develop the personalities of age. There are two types of outdoor gardening in which the progress of the season is not definitely expressed. In the carpet bedding kind, and in the subtropical kind, I hope that my reader will get a clear distinction in these matters, for it is exceedingly important. The carpet bedding gardening is the making of figure beds in house leeks, and acaranthes, and coleus, and sanitalia and other things that can be grown in compact masses and possibly sheared to keep them within place and bounds. The reader sees these beds in perfection in some of the parks and about florists' establishments. He will understand at once that they are not meant in any way to express the season for the difference between them in September and June is only that they may be more perfect in September. The subtropical gardening, plates four and five, is the planting out of house-grown stuff in order to produce given effects of such plants as palms, dracaenas, crotons, caladiums, papyrus, together with such luxuriant things as dahlias and canis and large ornamental grasses and castor beans. These plants are to produce effects quite foreign to the expression of a northern landscape, and they are usually at their best and are most luxuriant when overtaken by the fall frosts. Now. The home gardener usually relies on plants that more or less come and go with the seasons. He pieces out and extends the seasons, to be sure, but a garden with pansies, pinks, sweet william, roses, sweet peas, petunias, marigolds, salpaglossus, sweet sultan, poppies, zinnias, Asters, cosmos, and the rest is a progress of the season garden. Nevertheless, and if it is a garden of herbaceous perennials, it still more completely expresses the time of year. My reader will now consider, perhaps, whether he would have his garden accent and heighten his natural year from spring to fall or whether he desires to thrust into his year a feeling of another order of vegetation. Either is allowable. 
but the gardener should distinguish at the outset. I wish to suggest to my reader also that it is possible for the garden to retain some interest even in the winter months. I sometimes question whether it is altogether wise to clear out the old guarded stems too completely and too smoothly in the fall, and thereby obliterate every mark of it for the winter months. But however this may be, there are two ways by which the garden years may be extended, by planting things that bloom very late in the fall, and others that bloom very early in spring. By using freely in the backgrounds of bushes and trees that have interesting winter characters. And that's where we're going to end this podcast of the Sleep with Josh podcast. And congratulations, you've just slept with Josh. But if you're still awake, please also follow or subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player of choice. And please leave us a review because I hope this experience was as good for you as it was for me. Good night.